All right, welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast that had a really, really, really good time researching this episode. Mm. <laughs> Today we have Hope and Ambria, and today we're talking about pornography. This is a topic that comes up pretty often in leftist online conversations, but it seems like it's usually men who are doing all the talking, you. And I also wanted to say up front that um, at Season of the Bitch, we're explicitly pro-sex worker. We love y'all. So I just wanted to put that up there before we start talking about this stuff. I'm looking forward to what everybody has to say. We have three great guests joining us, which is amazing. Um, so I'm going to let them introduce themselves. Hi, I'm Taylor. Um, I'm a sex worker and organizer. I've been doing sex work for about a year and a half now and used to organize with DSA. And now I'm just kind of trying to figure out how to best advocate for myself and my communities with the resources that are available to me in Phoenix. Hell yeah. And then Zoe, did you want to go next? Yeah, my name is Zoe. Um, I went to school for photography and ended up also getting a women, gender, and sexuality studies degree. Um, I took a lot of classes related to sex work and pornography and did a lot of research into feminist porn and how that uh, functions as a form of activism. Um, I also did a lot of uh, like nude photo projects with friends, which ended up kind of growing as people as friends showed those images to other friends, they wanted to work with me. And um, it became like a really fun, empowering thing. And for me to help people have these images of themselves that they find empowering and that they can distribute and use uh, as they want. And now I work for a uh, bus magazine and do some writing for them. And I do some freelance work as well. That's super cool. Hey, y'all. I'm Sarah Beal. I am the curator for a website called makelovenotporn.tv. We are pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. Um, I have a degree in women's studies and creative writing, studied a lot about sex work. Um, I used to produce uh, feminist smut um, on the zine scene in Montreal, and I was also a mainstream porn script writer um, before I started curating real-world sex on Make Love Not Porn. That's super cool. Uh, amazing to have you all here. I think this is going to be such an interesting discussion. Uh, and a lot of times we like to start off episodes like this, uh, making it personal. So I thought we'd kind of talk about our personal feelings about or towards porn, whatever parts of your personal experience you're comfortable sharing. Um, and I'm happy to start. So I'll say for me personally, I've, I think reflecting back, I found porn to be both helpful and harmful at different points in my life. I think because I was, my family were like early internet adopters and I don't think my parents really knew that you could get to porn that way. Um, I probably <laughs> had porn at too young an age, um, but since I couldn't talk to my parents about it, I didn't have any context for whether what I was seeing was normal or realistic. And I also had gotten the messaging a lot that porn was something that only men liked. So I remember being like a, a preteen teenager and thinking like, I must be a lesbian or maybe like I'm transgendered because I like pornography but I but so I was trying to figure out like what that meant for me um, which was really confusing and then I would say as I've gotten older porn's been something that's helped me learn more about myself and has made my sex life more fun and interesting and I think both with partners and by myself um yeah I think similarly uh the first time I remember seeing it was in junior high when some like guy friends we were hanging out with like put it on my friend's computer as like a joke on like look girls are now watching porn by accident um and so then it yeah it was kind of like this weird uh taboo thing and then I didn't start using it like personally getting into it until maybe like the end of high school or college um but I only knew of Pornhub and wasn't really drawn to most of those options that they have um, and then kind of got into it more through actually academia and like activism and thinking about like the system of oppression and how that functions within porn and how that both like perpetuates certain things and also leaves room for people to create their own content and to like find an, uh, a form of empowerment through uh, having me in the productions over that, which yeah, has led to a lot of my research within that. 
I had a very similar experience as far as when I first saw porn, which is that I think like a boyfriend I had when I was 15 or something showed me porn on his computer. Um, but he was showing me like, like women having sex with dogs porn. And I was like, this is terrifying. (laughs) Like I wasn't, I was like fine with looking. I was like, ah, uh, but I was like, this this is a scary world out here, like on the internet looking at porn. But later on, I looked at it on my own and watched like mostly women masturbating and stuff like that. Yeah, I, I have to say I wasn't exposed to a lot of porn until I was in my early 20s. I remember um, the apartment that I lived in when I was 20. Uh, one day when I was cleaning up I found an old porno VHS tape from the eighties on a shelf. And I like, (laughs) I didn't even know what to do with it. It was like a hot potato. And um, I was at, I had a party coming up and I decided that we would watch it communally at, at the party. And, and I remember all gathering in the room and then not even really like look, being willing to look at the screen. Like I didn't really want to engage with it, but I, you know, I studied women's studies in school. I took a class called sexual representation in film. So I got to see a lot of like indie smut. And I remember also having this project where I had to watch one, one mainstream porno and one alternative porno. And the mainstream porno I watched was like called Secretary's Day. It was by Valent. It was on VHS. It was by Valentine Video. So this is like pre-free streaming internet porn. And I was watching it with like my two other um, like classmates. And we we took it like really seriously and just like we're taking notes and like very much studying this thing. And um, I remember there was part of the scene, one of the scenes where it was noted that um, the performer was actually not actually making much noise and they had actually dubbed over moaning to make the scene seem better. So that was definitely an impression. And also I saw my first double penetration. So that was also interesting. And then the alternative was Bend Over Boyfriend, which is produced by Goodbye Vibrations and Carol Queen. And I actually just met Carol Queen like last week and I got to tell her like how influential watching those those first two pornos that I saw and like seeing her work and how it influenced me. So, I mean, I think that because I was studying smut and porn, like um, sort of taking hold of the means of production and controlling like the, the lens has always been really important for me. And that's how I sort of entered, <laughs> sounds weird, entered porn. <laughs> but um I also have that weird thing of having worked for a mainstream porn company and having actually like been very much directly involved in um, producing like what is, you know, available online today in a very traditional sense. And now I watch real world sex videos and I review them to make sure that they're consensual, contextualized and porn cliche free, like not as a way of censoring uh, the sex, but as a way of just making sure that the people in the videos on Make Love Not Porn are not performing for the camera and actually having the sex they have in their everyday lives. So it's not so much my own personal, like early experiences with porn that affect my work, but definitely as work, it um, has been, it's been a career. Yeah, I found that personally, my relationship with porn and sex work in general has been largely shaped by um, like my personal journey through like the different waves of feminism, I guess, when you're like 14 and kind of like discover feminism on tumblr.com and you're like very like, well, I guess like girls deserve some rights. And and you make this journey where you're like, okay, well, is, is porn good? Is porn, um, exploiting women? Um, is there something wrong with capitalizing on the way that your sexuality is inherently monetized by the system that you live in? Or is it advantageous to be able to take advantage of that? So I think that for a long time, my feminism shaped the way that I viewed porn until I, um, you know, started doing sex work myself. And then I found that my sex work has influenced my feminism more the other way um, in that 
I'm more cognizant of, of what is good porn, what is um, exploitative porn and, you know, what's consensual and good and what's unusual and unsafe versus what's just like kinky and having that, that context and that frame allows me to navigate my own personal feelings and my own personal preferences for porn a lot better. Yeah. That's a really interesting distinction. Um, just thinking about like what's, um, safe and how like kink factors into that and, um, making those distinctions is, uh, there's just a lot of nuanced area there. Yeah. Um, I think also it was a good point talking about within the waves of feminism, um, especially like in the seventies and eighties where we saw the sex wars and porn wars, um, in which like there were kind of the anti-sex feminist, uh, brigade, which was considering, all sex work to be victims of patriarchy, but discounting any further critiques of capitalism coming from socialists and Marxist feminists. Um, and I mean, I think really the point for me more so is not in terms of like whether or not I enjoy watching porn, but supporting the workers regardless of what we think of the work. And yeah, before like jumping into things, uh, the term sex work was designed for one reason to be gender neutral and also uh, to linguistically align sex work with the labor movement and try to incorporate them into movements that they're often left out of. Um, and Kathy Weeks in The Problem with Work, which is a very good socialist feminist uh, writing, um, said that the work changes the word sex work changes the focus for people to view sex uh, as an employment option that provides an economic opportunity within the systems we live in, uh, which should more so highlight the weakness of the capitalist culture that we live in rather than putting blame on the workers that are doing it. Yeah, I think that's such a good point and an important point. I'm really mm -hmm. glad you raised that. You know, I think in terms of like supporting workers, we see this in areas like fast food even where no matter how you feel about fast food itself, personally, like if you want to eat it or not, or if you think the company should be making that or not, we still support the workers. We want them to make a living wage. We want their lives to be better. Um, there, We have to make distinctions there. So I'm really glad that you mentioned that and you gave some context. And also, since Kellen's not on this episode, I'm glad somebody's bringing in history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have a lot of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. I know as a feminist, like, when I was uh, writing scripts for a mainstream porn company, like, um, I definitely was always picturing the people I was writing for as people like sex workers who were in charge of their own decisions and had their own like bodily autonomy and decision-making powers. And that was a huge thing for me. Um, I don't, it's definitely true that there are a lot of men um, in production in mainstream porn, um, but it was always important for me to, as much as I could, center the the experience of the sex workers I was writing for. Yeah, that's really powerful. Um, diving into things a little bit more, I thought it would be helpful to break out dis different aspects for discussion. So I sort of arbitrarily just picked production, distribution, and consumption so we can try to talk about each one um, kind of through a socialist feminist lens. And so starting with production, you know, historically porn sets have been exploitative places for performers. Sex workers have had to fight really hard for basic protections and rights. Um, as prep for this episode, I did some looking around on Reddit and other message boards to see what the sort of socialist conversations around sex workers were like. And I saw a lot of people, probably mostly men again, making the argument that sex workers are inherently more exploited than other workers. Um, and I just wanted to know what you guys think about that. I'd say that's the most frustrating comment that I see reoccurring, um, both like online and in real spaces um, with like friends that I have is that like the work that we're doing is more exploitative. There's like really no other way to say it. And it, it seems to me like a really roundabout cop-out to not support sex workers that you know because you find their work maybe like distasteful or immoral or like clashing with your own personal convictions. And so when people throw that argument out, I, I just, I really don't understand it. I also have like a 40 hour, sometimes up to like 60 hour a week job where I'm, I'm expected to do a lot of things with little things with um, high repercussions if I do it incorrectly. And, you know, 
I, I'm fortunate enough that when I do sex work, I'm very much in charge of all of my scenarios. I'm in charge of all of my clients. I'm in charge of um, who sees my work and I'm in charge of um, like the money I make, the prices, everything like that. I'm, I'm completely self-sufficient in that way. And I know that there are definitely sex workers who don't have the options I have, who aren't able to set as many rules and boundaries for themselves. Um, but any industry is inherently going to exploit you. It just depends on how. And, and I think that people think that because it's a sexual exploitation that it like makes it worse or dirtier or something like that. But yeah, in the end, I I just think it's a cop out to say, well, I don't have to support your work because you could be doing something that's less exploitative, I guess. Yeah, I think that we're socialized to associate this intimacy with sex. Um, And I think even taking that into account, it's really hard for me to buy that sex workers are more exploited than other types of workers, Um, especially other types of workers who are also in, you know, illegal or only semi-legal trades that aren't regulated because the government has decided that, you know, you're not allowed to do it. Um, and then there's the fact that emotional labor, like smiling, being caring, laughing at jokes, um, things like that, you know, are a bigger and bigger part of being a worker. Um, so intimacy comes into the typical workplace as well. Um, my gut instinct is to say, no, sex workers aren't more exploited than other types of workers. Um, even when they're not in the kind of ideal situation that you were just uh, describing. But of course, I'm not an expert. And I think there are are layers to it, too. In any sector of work, you can find people who are feeling personally, whether or not it's true or not, that they're not being exploited at all. And you can have workers who feel that they're being heavily exploited. There's, you know, Mm. different ways Mm -hmm. that business is taken care of in any industry And like a lot of it is luck and a lot of it is privilege and a lot of it is like connections and, um, definitely more like, like privilege. Um, you can see that even within sex work who has access to filming, um, you know, safe and consensual and really profitable shoots and who has access to, you know, non-profitable, um, bad business interaction type shoots. Um, but I mean, that happens anywhere, even, you know, the restaurant industry, the the tech industry, anything. Yeah, I think those are really good points. Um, and to bring in another book from my research, um, but uh, Laurie Penny wrote a book called Meat Market, uh, which is about female flesh under capitalism. And she talks about how in all uh, in every workforce, women are expected to commodify our sexuality. It's how we look, how we act, how we talk. And it's being scrutinized in a way that is not true with male workers. Um, And uh, therefore, kind of the difference within that in sex work is that in sex work, that's just more explicit. And so people kind of tag on to that, wherein that's existing in every industry. Um, And she talks about how like marginalized bodies end up doing marginalized work. And so it's an easy thing to further perpetuate issues in marginalized communities uh, by pinning that onto the work they're doing. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, It's so irritating to just hear this repeated so often. And I think particularly (laughs) when sex work, and obviously there are definitely so many different kinds of sex work. It's a broad term that encompasses a lot of different ways that people are making a living for themselves. But for a lot of people, it can be a significantly better paid endeavor than other ways that they're being exploited. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I think that that just, you know, doesn't get said enough times. Also, we tend to hear the most about the the worst cases, I think, um, for obvious reasons. You know, when people are doing the kind of sex work that is the most dangerous and they're the most vulnerable, we hear about that a lot. But, you know, you don't hear as often, you know, we had somebody on the show who was a dominatrix and she was working to do that because when she was going to school, she could work way fewer hours and make a ton more money. But you just don't hear those stories as often. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, a lot of, I mean, a lot of mainstream media and stuff we consume doesn't want us to hear those stories. 
Yep. Um, So another problematic aspect of porn production is that it's historically been run by men from the financing all the way to the camera operators and the coffee fetchers. And it just perpetuates the issue with porn reinforcing the male gaze and has traditionally limited the type of porn that gets created. I think there's more um, female run companies than there used to be. And that's awesome. So I looked at like Crashpad, which emphasizes consent and communication about safe sex. But they're almost all paid sites. Um, And this might be kind of a good place, uh, Sarah, to talk a little bit more about Make Love Not Porn. Um, But I think a lot of people who would like to consume porn in this way can't or won't pay for porn. So I know that we live in a nightmarish hellscape and we're all drowning in healthcare costs, debt, repressed wages, high rent. So not having disposable income is totally understandable. Um, But like the people who would most want to support paying for porn sometimes can't fit it in their budget. And then those with more privilege and more cash should be paying for porn, but they seem like they're the least likely to actually do it. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a thorny issue. I mean, I, Make Love Not Porn has a profit-sharing business model. So it's um, all of the people on our site are everyday people who share the sex they would normally have in their everyday lives without performing for the camera. Um, We don't consider ourselves, um, like we don't consider our competition porn. We consider our competition Facebook or YouTube if they consider, if they allowed for socially sharing sexual content. Um, We really want to highlight the messy, awkward humanness of real-world sex, um, real-world bodies, real-world emotions, um, people dropping the lube, cats jumping on the bed, all of that kind of stuff. And we do also have some, um, some of our make love, not porn stars, as we call them, are also porn performers who work in porn or are self-employed as like uh, fetish pornographers. And then they share the sex they have offset with their real partners on make love, not porn. Um, Because we understand that who better understands kind of how constructed and uh, choreographed mainstream porn is than people who actually do it for a living. Um, we have a profit sharing business model because we believe that people should realize the value of what they create. And, um, to that end, Make Love Not Porn is a startup and we've been a very bootstrapping startup for a long time. And we had one business model, which was, um, $5 for a three week rental. And then we would split the profit 50, 50 with the Make Love Not Porn star. Um, so it was never like people were making a living wage, like they couldn't pay their full rent, I don't think, from the from their earnings, but they could certainly do things like people told us, we bought a new washer dryer, or we paid off our credit card debt, or we went out to a nice restaurant. So it, w- it became nice passive income for people. Um, definitely, we really emphasize that on our site, like, I know Jiz Lee, um, the queer por- porn performer, has talked a lot about like ethical porn and how important it is to pay for your porn. You know, if you're somebody who makes a budget every week and say you support indie songwriters or musicians, um, if you buy like albums on Bandcamp and you set aside, you know, I don't know, like $10 a month uh, to, to support independent artists on um on Bandcamp or whatever, like you should consider it the same when you're setting aside the funds for, you know, buying a scene on Crashpad or renting a real world sex video on Make Love Not Porn. Um, What you're getting when you use your money on ethical feminist porn sites or on a site like Make Love Not Porn is you're getting the assurance that um, the production of the porn scene in the case of something like Crash Pad was totally consensually produced. The performers were treated well. I know like feminist pornographers are super serious about the snacks that they have on set and like asking people about like their favorite brand of lube being on set and all of this stuff. And then also, you know, on Make Love Not Porn, like we're, we're love not porn, right? We distinguish ourselves as social sex, but we're basically saying like record what really happens in the real world in a consensual way. And so in that way, people have control over how things are produced, um, how they're represented. And it also helps fight social stigma because 
we're not like we're not a place where people can just fit into sort of like these weird porn niches it's it's all about people being real human beings. So that was a bit long. But anyway, when you are paying for your, your porn or your real world sex, um, it can be a really smart, ethical consumption choice. And I think it's it's great when people can think about it that way. Yeah, that's great. Um, what's one of the reasons I was super excited for you to be on this episode is just to provide another uh, perspective or option for people as we think about how to be kind of more responsible porn consumers, if we are. Yeah, I think, you know, um, right now, I mean, having worked in the mainstream porn industry, so I worked for a company called MindGeek, and I don't know how familiar y'all are with that company, but um, it started in Montreal, and it's uh, around 2011, they basically started up buying all the small to mid-sized porn uh, production companies in LA. So um, the biggest porn production company right now is basically this porn conglomerate that just kind of ate up all of these tinier studios. So like, and they not only produce porn, but they also own most of the the tube sites. So like Pornhub, YouPorn, um, all of those guys are owned by this one company, MindGeek. And they're basically, they've, they were able to make money by pirating small studios porn. And then when those small studios um, weren't able to make enough money to survive anymore because their porn was being pirated and streamed for free on, on Pornhub, then they basically ceded to MindGeek, then Manwin, um, to be bought out. So, I mean, I think in, there is something to be said about people like inherently not putting a lot of value on, say, sex work and, and porn production and not treating it like other media. Um, but in terms of like paying for it, like it really, really makes a difference because otherwise you're actually in some ways contributing to just sort of like the completely like uh, streamlining of porn niches and basically just like everything that's out there is produced by this one company. It's, it's pretty wild really. And there've been exposés written about it on Buzzfeed and there was a big piece in 2011, New York magazine, but it's, it's still not widely known. And I don't know if it's because, you know, people get what they what we call the porn hangover you know they they go on Pornhub they get off and it's only after they've come that they're sort of like oh okay how was that made was that person actually really enjoying themselves like what's going on here um and then they don't talk about it afterward and so there there isn't the conversation about how to have ethical like porn consumption habits happening in the way that it should be and and really the the sort of homogenization that's happening in all other like mainstream media industries is totally happening in porn as well yeah yeah I feel like I, I want to say that people aren't able to talk about ethical ways to consume porn because the conversation about like you know, consuming porn isn't mainstream yet. But then I see things like, you know, when like Pornhub tweets a funny joke and everyone's like, oh, did you see that Pornhub tweet? Like porn itself is saturated in our culture. People are talking about it all of the time, but no one wants to talk about what they're consuming and if it's something that's ethical or or even if it's something that's, you know, just like personal preferences. Like the fact that porn exists and that we know that like, um, kids are too young watching porn, you know, like I fucking saw porn when I was like 11 years old or something ridiculous. Like we know all of this is happening, but no one wants to follow through and have a conversation with, okay, so we're all watching porn. What are we watching? Who are we supporting? What businesses are we giving our money to and how are they paying or not, um, their performers? And so I just don't know how to start a conversation about, what are we watching? Because, you know, you can say that you saw the funny Pornhub tweet, but you can't say, like, this is what I was watching. 
Yeah, I mean, that's why Make Love Not Porn. Like our founder, Cindy Gallup, she launched MakeLoveNotPorn.com at TED in 2009 because as a woman in her 40s who was dating younger men, she discovered through direct personal experience that um, the men she was sleeping with were learning how to be good in bed from porn. And she didn't necessarily think that they were... um, bad people but she noticed after several encounters that they they were kind of pulling out the same moves and you know asking her things like do you want me to come on your face and or where do you want me to come and all of this stuff and so make love not porn.tv sort of the the next generation of make love not porn.com is is all about definitely sexy entertainment, but also education through demonstration and actually having that conversation. Like we want to make it uh, socially acceptable for people to be, to share real world sex videos online and to be seen as sexual beings and to, we want to start a conversation about what it means to have good sexual values and the differences between porn world sex and real world sex. And one of the you know, Cindy will say, you know, nothing but nothing um, shows you the differences between porn world sex and real world sex and actually seeing like people enjoying sex in their everyday lives, like in terms of how it influences you, like it definitely turns you on, but it, it also makes you feel like you want to connect with other human beings. And And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to not just have something online, but we're trying to create something that will create conversation in the real world. Yeah, I'm a big fan of metaphors and especially metaphors that go too far. So I was thinking about this earlier and how the way we consume porn, I think, is is sort of related to something like a cooking show where you watch a cooking show for entertainment. You watch it for inspiration. Sometimes you watch it to learn how to do things. Sometimes it makes you hungry. It evokes a response from you. Um, But if you watch a cooking show that's totally unrealistic, um, especially like the old school ones where they would just like throw some shit in a bowl and then pull a casserole out of the oven finished, (laughs) you you can't go home and make that recipe, right? That's like the power of Julia Child is that like cooks could actually watch the show and then be like, oh, I can make this now. And I think that there's something to be said for porn in that way too. And that we get a, we respond to it, we engage with it, but we also... We're trying to learn something that we're going to probably try to recreate. I I kind of have a little bit of a different experience. Um, I think hearing about the project where people have uh, are sort of real sex um, and distinguishing that from sort of the porn sex. But at the same time, there's a lot of things I like to watch in porn that is like so oddly and totally unrelated to anything that I want to do in real life. And so it's been this weird combination of both like inspiring my sexuality as I've grown up in certain ways. Um, But then also like being part of like a fantasy world that doesn't necessarily translate to my own personal, you know, practiced sexuality. And I've, I've been kind of trying to figure that out for a while. Like what would cause me to enjoy and feel turned on by watching something that I would never um, or that I don't necessarily want to do. Um, and that's something that I've kind of been stewing on, you know, coming to this episode is like, you know, where does that come from? Um, how does that fit in? I think that's a really great point to make. There's porn that I watch where I'm like, no, that's not something I want incorporated into my bedroom at all. Um, but I think that once we're able to start talking about the porn we watch, we can start analyzing that. Cause I have those questions too. I mean, this is something that I'm a part of. I have friends that, do this and I have these conversations and I'm like, why am I so interested in watching this if it's not something that I'm actually interested in like practicing in my life? And I think that's kind of where I get just upset that we don't talk about, um, you know, porn as often because there are those unanswered questions of like, what does this mean? Like, is this saying something about who I am or what I like? Um, Yeah, that's probably particularly true in like socialist, uh, leftist and feminist circles. Because there's so much taboo around even just saying you like porn. A lot of times, if, you, if you're not the first one to say it and you bring up porn, everybody will just talk about how it's awful and it's always degrading and that's the end of the conversation. 
Um, so I think even just like having a conversation like we're having now does a lot to kind of like move the needle and open up dialogue so we can think about it in a more open way. Yeah, I mean, I do want to point out just to clarify that, you know, make love not porn is pro-sex, pro-porn, pro-knowing the difference. We're not anti-porn. We see porn as a fantasy. Um, so I don't think there's actually nothing wrong with sexual fantasies. I think um, production and consumption are separate issues, but um, I don't I don't think it helps for us to be like personally policing ourselves all the time. Um, that was a really good first half of the show. In the second half, we're just going to keep going down this rabbit hole. Uh, I want to start off just talking about some of the contents of mainstream pornography, and y'all feel free to jump in and uh, vent here if you want. One thing that I'm always slightly horrified by is the captions. I just feel like I don't know who writes these or what the process is like, but it could be the most gentle, sweet scene, and the captions are always like, hot guy destroys stepsister with his monster hog. And I'm always like, what the hell? That's not even what's happening in the video. Um, they're so overtly violent and offensive and poorly written. Um, also, an unrelated complaint, but one that I've made on Twitter already. Why are people always ripping yoga pants in porn videos? I'm always watching, like, horrified, like, no, those were really good ones. Those looked really expensive. And maybe they're just the fishnets of our day and I'm late to the party, but it still bothers me. Uh, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, so I had an ex who got like a lot of his problematic ideas of sex from porn, uh, which has become more and more clear to me even throughout this discussion. Um, <laughs> but he would like use like very problematic terms for trans people. That is like what they use in a lot of mainstream porn. Um, which is another huge issue with it is like the fetidization and the way we view uh, pretty much everyone's identity. Um, but one thing that he like really wanted to do was like rip my tights off. And I was like, no, do you know how much those cost? <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was not into that fantasy because they, they're expensive. <laughs> um, but I think kind of in line with the way that that's problematic is the way in which some feminist sites do combat that. Um, so like Stoya, feminist icon, um, her site Trenchcode X created their own kind of labeling system for videos. And the way they handle like genitalia is using like mostly internal versus mostly external. Um, so that they avoid bringing in gender and equating gender with genitalia at all. Um, so I think that's kind of a way that uh, feminist or independent porn is able to or tries to combat the problematic ideas that people get from mainstream porn, but the same people are most likely not viewing both of those. Mm -hmm. Yeah, on Make Love Not Porn, we have an approach where we just ask that everything be contextualized. So as part of submitting a video to our site, we ask people to write a backstory. And how we explain that to people is it's not like the porno play-by-play, -play, like horny slut, blah, blah, blah. It's actually just like, how were you feeling that day? Like, what was your favorite part of the video? You know, mm -hmm. what was the weather like? That kind of thing. Because sex doesn't happen in a vacuum. And part of what makes it hot in the real world is like how it came about and, and how you were feeling about it. We also try to tag our... Uh, videos in in a way that isn't like overly clinical but also isn't um, completely influenced by porn so um, we have our own word for cunnilingus it's lick job some people have said oh well you know it's not a job <laughs> and we're like we know <laughs> but, but and um, we wanted a, a word that was just as snappy as blowjob to convey cunnilingus. Um, we also have a tag on our site that's called soft serve. And the definition of soft serve is when a dick isn't super hard, but it's still awesome in the extreme. So we want to, we try to celebrate like bodies and how they actually work um, through our tagging and also have a little bit of humor too. That's really cool. It did seem like that's a big issue um, when you get into like how porn is tagged or how we categorize things. You know, I wondered like, how do you have more diversity and highlight that diversity, you know, whether it's like porn or more videos like you guys do um, without, 
without really putting that in terms that people find offensive or, you know, kind of dice people into small parts of their identity. So I like the idea of uh, coming up with some of your own terms for things like soft serve is really cute. Yeah, I think when we designed Make Love Not Porn, we wanted, we didn't want to just kind of spoon feed people exactly what they were looking for. Like porn niches um, are so specific and you know, you hear people saying like, um, you know, I got so specific with my porn, like I could only get off to da 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 da, you know? And we hoped that maybe people who came to Make Love Not Porn were looking for something a little different. And we didn't, we wanted sort of like in the same way that when you have sex with somebody, you don't always know exactly what's going to happen. Um, you know, you might not always know exactly what's going to happen. Uh, in a real world sex video. So we don't overly tag our stuff. And um, I think because people are specifically controlling their own image and getting to do what they really want to do, um, we fight the kind of um, fetishization that comes from like porn tags on porn sites. I think that's really true and very helpful. I've talked to a few sex workers who don't do porn, um, but, you know, we talk about it and we talk about the ways of, like, well, what would I have to be willing to tag myself as if I was willing to do this porn? And, you know, I have um, trans friends who who find that they're dealing with a lot of body dysmorphia, but the way that you would have to market your transness in a mainstream porn industry is very triggering for that. The language that you would have to use and, um, kind of the, the marketing, um, that would come from that can be very triggering. And I think that, you know, it's, um, it's kind of like a funny conversation, you know, like what would I have to be tagged as, but it's also like, we're all trying to perform in a certain way and, and we're all trying to enjoy this experience together. And, um, you know, if you get to a place where you're able to make porn with essentially your friends, um, to have to think about like, well, what would I, how am I going to have to market this? And like, what kind of people are looking in those tags, um, can be very upsetting. And, and it seems really innocuous to someone who's not in the industry and who's just trying to, you know, like get to what they like on Pornhub. But, um, for, you know, performers who have to legitimately think like, when you click on this, you're going to see photos and videos of me. Um, it's a lot bigger than that. So something as small as like changing tags and changing the language that we use to um, categorize performers can be really important for performer self-esteem and um, even like longevity in the business. Yeah, for sure. I'll, another thing we also do is we allow people to suggest tags. Um, so that's like another option. I know that... Um, I believe Crashpad does this. I know Spit in Toronto um, uh, had their performers um, suggest tags. That's another way. But but yeah, I mean, I've um, like we've had people, we've had Make Love Not Porn stars on Make Love Not Porn who have also you know gone on like camming sites and stuff like that. And um, because of just how pervasive like porn cliches are and how specific and niche like porn languages, you know, couples would go on cam, for example, and just people don't, people wouldn't really accept that they just wanted to have sex on camera. There would be a lot of requests for very specific things and for tagging related to specific things. Um, and, and yeah, I think, I think that tagging can be really harmful, especially when it comes to marginalized folks. I would be more in favor of um, filters, honestly, because I'm petty. If there was like a dude's not wearing or dude's wearing socks filter that I could just filter <laughs> that out, I would be so happy. That's like that's the foulest thing to me. Like, I <laughs> there are some things I would like to be able to filter out for sure. We do not have a dudes wearing socks tag on our site. <laughs> <laughs> That's just for you to find out. <laughs> Maybe their feet are cold, Hope. <laughs> well, somebody on set should have turned the heat up for them then. 
So moving into distribution, obviously, um, as we've talked about, there are companies and possibly only know one uh, horribly evil company who's making a ton of money from this and are exploiting the workers to a ridiculous degree. And I was thinking about this and wondering which is the more kind of like socialist utopian solution, pornography that's more of a mutually beneficial exchange between exhibitionists and voyeurs or something like a worker co-op where... Uh, everything is produced and distributed within, like, from that group, and they share the profits completely, equally, and run it democratically. Mm, that's a hard toss-up. Yeah, that is a toss. <laughs> that is that is tough. I guess my initial instinct would be to say more towards the latter in getting to the heart of social socialism being workers at the means of production and owning the means of production. Um, but uh, both those options have a lot of pros and potential cons, I think. The former seems good. I think the main problem with it is people who watch porn would have to start classifying themselves as voyeurs, which I don't know if everyone would feel comfortable doing. I mean, I've called myself an exhibitionist for as long as I can remember, but, you know, if you're just, like, jacking off to porn once a week, I doubt you're going to want to be like, yeah, I'm a voyeur. That's my thing. Like, (laughs) people are very... (laughs) Like, people don't want to admit that that's what they're doing a lot of the time. Like, people... It's just so strange. Everyone's everyone's jacking off to porn. Just admit it. Yeah, I think in, in the way this is framed, you wouldn't necessarily have to like be your exhibitionist who identifies your voyeur, where you do like a perfect trade. But it's more imagining dark like, alley deal, right? Exactly. Like I'm your I'm your pre matched voyeur. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's it's more the idea that like you know in in some kind of like socialist utopia, imagine everybody has they're making enough money they have shelter food you know there isn't like the same necessarily need for income from something like this would it be better to have just an exchange system and it could be something that was protected so that you know kind of like make love not porn does where you don't get to actually keep the material that somebody is sharing um but it would be more of like a trade um that was just a mutually beneficial kind of like sharing of erotic imagery or is it better to keep it as more of kind of like a business? I think that's sort of the essential question. I guess as someone who like pays my bills from this, I want to keep saying, like, I want to say that we can keep making money from this, mm-hmm. but also like in an ideal world where I have enough money to pay all of my bills, um, would I still do this for fun without money? Just knowing that people are watching it. Yeah, probably. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Yeah, people definitely enjoy, you know, making making sex videos for the fun of it. I mean, people have always enjoyed a little voyeurism and exhibitionism. I think I think that it's important to remember that, like, right now, um, and even in, you know, the socialist feminist utopia, like, we are, we're going to need to confront the stigma around sex and talking about sex. And, and the deep level of shame that, that currently exists around sex. Like, you know, Make Love Not Porn is sort of closer to the latter, um, you know, perfect world, feminist, socialist feminist, utopian porn business model um, <laughs> because we have a profit sharing business model. But, you know, I just like to bring up here that, you know, it's it's been very very difficult even just for a business like make love not porn to exist and have um the profit sharing business model that we do um even when we get commitments from you know people who work at banks or payment processors um we've routinely had our bank accounts shut down um paypal won't work with us because we're adult content so even though people at those companies can individually agree business model and see that we're trying to create something new um, and we're trying to create a space online for social sex the reality is that the stigma around sex and porn um, really threatens our business and and that stigma will will always need to be, be dealt with before you know we can have a a utopian model so now on to the really fun part, consumption. Um, <laughs> and we've already talked about some of this here and there, but you know we've identified all these issues with pornography, pornography production and distribution. 
um, touched a little bit on just the importance of finding ways to be more ethical consumers. Um, I think there's a question that comes up a lot of, does pornography, mainstream pornography in its current state, does it do harm to people? Um, so I think that's a question I'd love to hear what you guys think about. Harm? Not... Oh, God. I, I want to say not necessarily, because my own personal experience with it is I don't feel harmed by it. Um, but I, I know that even when performers enter into agreements um, with porn sites, that at the end of the day, they can get shorted a lot. Um, just talking about, you know, um, big porn giants that are exploiting their workers, there's many vids, which is paying their workers, I think, like 60% of like the total amount of funding that they get from like clicks from people viewing their videos um, and are just kind of notorious for uh, creating false deals with their performers that ultimately um, leave them feeling like they were taken advantage of in that financial situation. Um, and then they're also doing really performative things like um, Elon Musk launched his SpaceX go to the moon type thing. And they're like, Hey, Elon, we're willing to partner with you to offer in-flight entertainment from many vids. And all of the comments are just performers being like, yet I don't have my check. And um, it's, it's really hard because the mindset is if you're going to go to a, a big distributor, like something like Pornhub, something like many vids, you anticipate um, as someone new to the industry that you'd be able to make money from that because you're getting a lot of clicks, you're getting a lot of viewers um, but the business model on those websites just doesn't allow for that. And so you have to integrate yourself into the industry, which is difficult. And um, sex work by nature is kind of individual. You know, we don't we don't all go to a work site. We don't all, um, you know, clock in for work and see our coworkers and we're like, hey, what's good? Like a lot of us just start in our bedroom. And how do you start to make money? Um, and how do you enter these things without um, making connections? And, and who do you trust when the, the paperwork that you're given says you're going to make money? And then in the end of the day, you don't make money. Um, and so I don't know how to tell people that this is something good that they should be doing when there's so many things that can go wrong by like no fault of your own. Mm -hmm. So I think your answer does a good job of addressing how mainstream porn does harm to workers and to content creators. But I think the the question I was trying to get at is like, does the does a does mainstream pornography do harm to consumers? So like to people who are watching porn, oh. whether it's because they're young or because it's unrealistic or, you know, whatever it is, like what is there is there harm being done there and how much is that mitigated by sourcing kind of more ethical erotic material oh yeah no I would definitely say that harm is is being done because there's no um not like definitely I don't want to be like oh yeah porn sucks don't watch it but like there there's no context for it people aren't having these conversations and so they are getting a lot of you know like the bad boyfriends that bring terrible kind of like borderline abusive tactics to the bedroom thinking that they're super hot like that's harmful for sure like there's kids who are watching sex thinking that this is like totally normal intimate ways to act with your partner and like it's not always sometimes it's just kinky sometimes it's things that like adults like but if you're not having a conversation about like what's real what's performative what's just for my imagination and like making those distinctions and just like flooding the gates with all of these like images I, I think that that has the potential to do harm. Yeah, I mean, I agree. Like, one of the reasons why the the reason why make love not porn exists is because uh, porn has become uh, sex default sex education um, in not a good way. It's porn has rushed in to fill the gap because as a society, um, we're reluctant to talk openly and honestly about sex, um, about anatomy, about what good sex looks like, about consent, all of those things. Um, and so at the very least, porn um, leads to a lot of miscommunication between people who are sleeping together and a fair amount of bad sex. Um, and just 
yeah, I mean, we porn isn't the problem. The problem is that people aren't talking openly and honestly about sex and teaching their children good sexual values and what it's like to be good in bed, really. And and we kind of we need to do that. Yeah, um, I have a couple of points here as well. Um, Murray Miller Young, who's a lead scholar on um, Black women in pornography, um, talks about how entering the means of production is really powerful to critique society and offer what she calls revolutionary paradigm. Um, and in her theory, she equates that, or not equates, says that uh, the sex industries are complicit and the belief of that sexuality in women of color is deviant and dangerous drives uh, drives the disproportionate rates of incarceration for sex workers that are doing street work. Um, so she really thinks that that does bleed into society and societal views um, on other forms of sexuality. Um, and then another thing is that the the bodies that we get to see, like in a lot of places, it's illegal to show labia that protrude uh, out of the inner labia out from the outer labia. Um, and we see a rise in labiaplasty. So we know that people uh, are seeing this and not seeing themselves and that it's affecting uh, self-esteem and it's affecting the way society functions because everyone is watching porn, but we're not talking about it. Um, and so there's kind of no way to process and uh, work through how what we're seeing isn't necessarily what is realistic. Yeah, I think that's a really great point, too. I had this conversation with my partner earlier today, which I would encourage more people to do. I just asked him, uh, what things did you learn in porn that you tried out that were not real, <laughs> that were not true? <laughs> um, and it was really funny to hear his answers. And I asked him if he minded me sharing and he said it was fine. Um, but one he said was that everybody likes really vigorous tongue kissing, <laughs> and, I, <laughs> and which makes total sense if you're, you know, like, you know, especially if he was like in college at the time, you're like, yeah, this is what everybody likes. Uh, definitely not what everybody likes all the time. Um, and then he also mentioned that anal sex is something that happens really easily and quickly. And I think that was <laughs> a really good point, too. Um, I also wanted to mention the fact that most straight porn um, is very linear and predictable. So it's like blowjob, sex, guy orgasms, end of porn. Um, and that has really been detrimental to a lot of straight sex that people are then having, where the expectation is sex is over when the guy has an orgasm. Um, and I think that is a really hard thing for people to work through. Yeah, the linear aspect. Point. Okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. Yeah, the, the linear aspect of it is really true is you, you think it's like, uh, here's what we do. We do a little bit of foreplay and then we do some penetration and then maybe I like flip you over once or twice and then we're done. But that's like not how a real sexual experience should happen. And there's the, the, the finish line idea of it, like in porn, um, like orgasm is really centered in a lot of like mainstream porn versus like artistically done porn, which is like kind of more of like a long thing. I think that's also why I really liked, like when I started watching porn, I started watching lesbian porn because there is no like ultimate finish point like that. Like there is in porn that has like cis men in it. Um, and yeah, yeah I do. think that unlearning that like, I don't know, like doesn't that get boring? Just thinking that you do like the same three steps every time. I guess like not porn for... is... Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I guess it doesn't get boring for the men because it's all about their orgasm, so they feel fine about it. Damn, that's that's true. That's very true. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, that's like the money shot is the male orgasm. So, But it's definitely boring for not cis men, yes. <laughs> well, I think it creates a lot of unhappiness in relationships, though, too, where, you know, like the female partner may not be as satisfied with the sex they're having and the male partner is like, but why? I'm doing all the stuff in the correct order. I don't understand why this isn't good for you. And they yeah, yeah. I, my leg leg and... <laughs> I lasted for 45 minutes. And... Yeah. <laughs> What's the problem? Yeah, see, talk about it. People have to talk about it. Um there's no other way. And I mean, it's sort of funny because, you know, I started out as kind of like a baby feminist porn scholar before I worked in mainstream porn. And, 
your analysis is totally correct. But the thing is, like, nobody who is producing this mainstream porn is is trying to hide the fact that they're literally just writing in, like, you know, still, like, 10 minutes of dialogue, 10 minutes of oral sex for the man, you know, a bit of ass slapping, and then, you know, 45 minutes of, you know, five different positions. Like, this stuff is, it's designed to to get men off. You know, it gets women off as well. It gets people of other, of all genders off sometimes. But, you know, that's, that's the thing. When people are taking it as like, this is how you should be having sex, that that is when it becomes a, a big problem. Mm-hmm. All right. So we are about out of time. Um, that is all for our show this week. Thank you again to our amazing guests. This was so much fun, really thought-provoking. As always, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Listen, rate, review on iTunes. Slide us some money in Patreon, especially if you're a cisgendered white man, especially this week. Um, I think that's it. So good talking to you guys. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bitch.